Everybody awake, live? Okay, great. Verse 1. Since Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things? Do you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one here, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So see that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but, but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver, up, deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, I believe it's Daniel chapter 9, um, let the reader understand, then uh, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing, with nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on, the sa- or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as, um, um, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's, on the, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We'll stop there. Now, um, this is a huge, heavy scripture verse, and we're going to dive into the, in, dive into this this morning. Um, let me just the way you think about God. I, I just so believe that it really matters. Okay, so the way that you um, because it defines everything for you. you know, we've we've gone over this. It defines it, it. It shapes the way you believe, which shapes the way you think, which shapes the way you be, behave and act and have your being in this world. And so, um, and the same is true of how we, how we look at, at Scripture and how we interpret Scripture. And um, there's one thing I want to go over this morning. Um, you know, it's very important when studying Scripture that we are very careful not to take everything at face value because there's a lot of imagery in the Bible. And oftentimes what we try and do is we try to understand uh, the Scriptures from a Western way of thinking um, when we don't actually take into understanding or we don't take into consideration how the writer and how those people that time thought. And so what we end up doing is we end up what's called eisegeting the Bible rather than exegeting the Bible. 
to eisegete is basically to put your understanding and your own meaning into the word rather than to exegete, which is to draw the meaning out of it, okay? So when we read the scriptures, we always want to try and do our due diligence with um, reading it and understanding it and kind of deciphering it in a way that the writer would have written to his audience, okay? Otherwise, you can do some serious damage when you just kind of just take things the way we understand things without not really understanding the times of what are taking place. You guys following along so far? Okay. And so, you know, with any type of, with any type of, of message that you hear, any type of preaching that you hear, it's really important, I think, that we do our due diligence and you actually go and you study. Because it's, I think it's really important that you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Um, I mean, we teach our kids, don't just absorb everything that you hear, right? I mean, we don't want them to do that. We want them to have a healthy skepticism and to, to be able to kind of think for themselves rather than just having people spoon feed them. Or even for us, we don't want people just to spoon feed you God's word. We, you got to take things, even from the things that I say. Don't believe everything that I say, okay? All right? I, I'm just trying to, to come about this in a, in a correct way. You have to take the word of God and you got to look it up and decide for yourself so that you know what you believe and why you believe it. You guys with me? Okay. And, you know, um, I, I really hate it when we, I guess, approach different interpretations of Scripture with kind of like a pop culture. Pop culture uh, is kind of like if there's a difference in interpretations, it's like, oh, I disagree completely. You're a heretic. Peace out. I'm God. You know, it's just like, and it just kind of breaks up relationships and all. Rather, I think we can approach things with more of an academic type of culture. And we can, because I, I, you know, like recently, like this past week, I sat with somebody. Uh, we, were, we were at like Panera Bread for almost two hours, this young guy. And he, um, and, uh, he actually was going to school to be a... Um, to be a pastor, and he came back an atheist after coming from school, and he's actually going back to becoming a Christian once again, which is really cool. But, you know, it's, it's, it's important that we kind of, that's why I said the most important thing about you is the way you see God, and he got freaked out. Um, but, you know, we were able to sit there, and we didn't see eye to eye on everything, but, you know, at least we can kind of we can kind of like approach, we can kind of like approach scripture and say, well, look, this is from, from what the studies that I have done. This is my interpretation. And he's like, the studies that I've done, this is his interpretation. And we were able to sit there and talk. And that's kind of having like an academic approach to scripture. You guys with me so far? And I think that's really important because what it does is it just, it enables relationships to continue, even though we may have to dis- agree to disagree on things. Okay. Now I say all that because this morning I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to preach. I'm going to teach this morning, okay? There's going to be some preaching towards the end, but I want to go through Matthew 24. I want to look at the book of Revelation, and I'm still on this theme of being a difference maker, but I want to bring these things together and show you how a correct understanding of the scripture positions us for being a difference maker in the world. You guys with me? And so I'm... Um, I am. I'm going to. I'm going to do some. I'm going to do some academic teaching this morning. So if you've got notes, great. We will have this recorded, so that's cool too. Um, but I'm going to. I guess what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to stretch your understanding of Scripture a little bit. And I'm here this morning just to tell you that this is simply this is my interpretation and people that I've studied under, um, and I think it's going to bring a lot of freedom and liberty to your lives. Okay. Jesus says his yoke is easy, his burden is light. At that time, they said there was known to be in about 5,000 different interpretations of the scriptures. 
And so to follow a rabbi was to take his yoke upon you and to learn from him. But at that time, it's like, who do we follow? Because there's all these different interpretations, which is why Jesus made it so simple. He said, come. He's like, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come follow me. Take my yoke, my teaching upon, me, upon you and learn from me. He's just trying to keep it very simple for people. And so um, I'm not here to tell you what to believe, okay? I'm just simply coming at more of an academic approach to these scripture verses. And maybe it will kind of conjure up in your own mind um, some other questions. And I'm hoping that it does, okay? And so we can talk and uh, not here. But we can, you know, afterwards, afterward, let me teach. And then afterwards, if you have questions, you know, this week, please, by all means, I'd, I'd love to hear them. But uh, this is just biblical interpretation. I'm going to go into some eschatology this morning, and, uh, and we'll see where it goes. But this is me just kind of coming with an academic approach to teach you guys, okay? But it's up to you to do your due diligence, to read and to study, and to see what you believe, okay? Good? I hope I didn't scare you too much. All right. When we read Matthew 24, when we read Matthew 24, um, many people believe that a lot of this applies to what we call the end times, right? And so, um, so when we hear about persecutions, we say it's a sign of the end times. And we hear about earthquakes and famines and pestilence, we say it's a sign of the end times, right? And it, or so if you, if you hear about, um, if you hear about prophets, uh, like false prophets and, you know, people who say there's the ring of fire in the Pacific Ocean, that everything's going to explode, we say, oh, it's just a sign of the end times. And we, so we have this expectation now that everything's meant to get worse, Okay? Now, I want to bring this into some clarity, Matthew 24, because oftentimes what we end up doing is we take, in, in my Bible anyway, I have the ESV. I don't know what version you guys have. Um, but I have the, the English Standard Version. And, and uh, um, it, verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 24, if you can see this far, I'm sorry. But um, it, it, it is, there's what, verses 1 and 2, and they're kind of like sectioned off right here at the top. And then, uh, then uh, from verse 3 onward, it has signs of the end, end of the age. In some translations, it's signs of the end of the world. Okay, but we have to read verses 1 and 2 with the, with, in connection with the rest of the scripture. Okay, and so this is how Jesus, this is how it starts. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one, one, uh, here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he's looking at the law-based system. He's looking at the temple, the Mosaic law, and he's saying, see this? It's all going to be destroyed. It's all coming down. And so He's sitting down on the Mount Olives, and the disciples come to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, what will be the sign of your coming, and the end of the age. And he goes on, and he starts listing the different signs. Now, in some translations, you find that it says, the, instead of saying the end of the age, it says the end of the world. Does anybody have a translation that says that, end of the world? Oh, good. Good for you. All right. <laughs> All right. Look in your Bibles. Maybe you'll find that there. Well, we'll maybe, I think it's the NIV. Um, it, says the, it says the end of the world rather than the, end of the, rather than the end of the age. But it doesn't make sense for, it doesn't make sense for Jesus to say the whole law, everything, the temple, everything's going to be thrown down. Not one stone will, be, will remain upon another. It doesn't make sense for Jesus to say that and for the disciples to say, so when's the end of the world? That doesn't make sense. It, it's, not, it's not in context, and we have to keep things in context. 
Okay? If they were to say, what is the end of the world, they would have used the word cosmos. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, the cosmos, the world, the whole thing. Okay? But it doesn't use the word cosmos here. It uses the word aeonios, which is where you find, if you continue in John 3, 16, um, um, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, that word eternal is that word aeonios, okay? And it's very important that you're very careful about how to translate this word because it's subjective, all right? It, it derives its meaning to the subject to which it refers. You guys with me so far? Okay? So, for instance, if I were to say tall, the word tall is subjective, okay? Because if, if I were to say a tall tree, you may think, what, 40, 50, 60 feet high? But if I were to say a tall man, you're not going to think of a man 40, 50, 60 feet high. You're going to think of like six or seven feet, all right? So I guess I'm short because I'm not at six foot exactly. <laughs> so like five foot, ten and a half, all right? Um, so uh, so it, it's subjective. It gets its meaning. It derives its meaning from the subject to which it refers, all right? So the, the word for aeon in scripture or aeonius basically means an age or an age lasting, a period, a span of time, okay? So um, when he says, they're, they're, Jesus says, all this is going to be destroyed. Everything's going to come down. It doesn't make sense for them to, the disciples to then say, when will be the end of the world? No, he's saying, when will be the end of the age? The age of what? Now at that time, there were two ages. They believed in the, the present age and the age to come, okay? The present age spoke of the Mosaic law. The age to come would be the age of the new covenant because they had all these promises that a Messiah would one day come and he was going to, he was going to bring, bring salvation. He was, going to, he was going to eliminate the old covenant system of Moses. All right? You guys tracking with me? I know this is, this is a lot this morning. All right? Um, so this is a little different. Um, and, and so... so they're asking, they're not asking when will be the end of the world. They're saying when will be the end of this age moving and when will be the, the sign or when will be the signs of coming into the new age. So when will, when will all this come to be? When will this come down? He's talking about the Mosaic law period, okay? All this is going to be over. It's all going to be done. They're saying when is this going to happen? That's the context, not, not the end of the world, okay? So like it, with this word aeon, let me give you an example because that's the Greek in the in the it's, it means a span of time. It's subjective. So like with Jonah, the word in the Hebrew for what we use for eternity or forever or an age is um, olam, all right? Olam is the same, basically has, holds the same meaning as aeon. And so in Jonah 1.17, do we have this one, Jesse? Jonah 1.17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Right? That's the story, right? Three days, three nights. But if you go on, Jonah 2, verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's that word olam. So what was it? Was he in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, or was he there forever? It's that word, it's that word olam, okay? It probably felt like forever, and that's kind of the meaning behind that word. You guys with me? It's subjective. That's why you have to be careful how to translate this because it's subjective based on the subject to which it's referring, okay? And so he was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. We know he was in the belly of the whale for forever because, um, because he got spat out. 
So he clearly wasn't there forever. So is this a contradiction? No, it's just an understanding of the word that we just don't think about today. Is making sense, guys? Okay. So it's the same thing. It's the same thing in Matthew 24. They're not asking when will be the end of the world. That doesn't make sense. They're asking when will be, when will be the end of the age. So, and then when you look at Matthew 23, Matthew 23, it's, it's one of, another one of those really heavy, heavy uh, scripture verses because he's talking to the Pharisees and the keepers of the law, and he's pronouncing all of these woes upon the teachers of the law, okay? And, and it's, it's, it's pretty ugly. You know, he's, he's, he's calling them a bunch of names, worst names in the book. And he's saying all this stuff is going to come upon you guys. And then in verse 36, he says, this is Matthew 23, verse 36. He says, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This generation. And it leads right up into Matthew 24, where he talks about the destruction of the law-based system. But he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent, sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Okay? And so... And so here's Jesus, and he's actually proclaiming, he's prophesying or declaring to them what is going to take place in a generation. Now, a generation, a generation is 40 years, okay? Now, this is occurring in, 30, in A.D. 30. And so 40 years' time would be A.D. 70, okay? Now, historically, A.D. 70, what happened was that Rome surrounded Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the law-based system. The temple, everything came crashing down. Okay, they, they, actually, they actually burned the temple, and there was so much gold in the temple that as it was burning, the gold was oozing out of the bricks, and they had to collect it, and they took it back with them. They, not only did they flatten the temple, but they actually, they actually um, dug up and, and trampled upon the whole foundation as well. It was a whole system that would never be able to be resurrected. This is historical fact. This part's not debatable, okay? You can go look it up. It's, it's an historical thing that took place in 70 AD, and Jesus was warning everybody. Okay? And so... Um, and so, in, and so 70 AD, this is, this is where it all took place. But a lot of times we read Matthew 24 as if all these things were to, were, are still yet to come. But Jesus says, no, all this will come upon this generation. Are those guys still alive or still living? Or does a generation mean two, 3,000 years? No, it meant 40 years back then. And we have to keep it in that context. So 40 years. And 40 years time, that's exactly what took place. All right? You guys track with me so far? Let me show you this, too. It's Luke, Rome surrounded Jerusalem. Here's, here it is in Luke 19. Jesus says exactly that. Luke 19, 41 through 44. For in those days, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus was actually declaring to them what Rome would do in 40 years' time. He would, they would, it says, he says, they will, your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. Luke 19, I think it's 41 through 44. So you can go and look that up for yourselves, okay? Did I get that right, Jesse, or did I get that wrong? Never mind, I got it right. <laughs> so when Jesus says in Matthew 23, see your house is left to you desolate, 
If you go on to, uh, if you go on to Matthew 24, there's a subtitle called The Abomination of Desolation. What was the abomination of desolation? The abomination was Rome surrounding Jerusalem and it, they, that they left the city in desolation. Okay? Is this making sense, guys? All right? And so let me give you, uh, let me give you a few quotes, all right? So, this is, so it's, no, it's not just coming from me. John Wesley. You guys have heard John Wesley? All right. John Wesley, here's the quote. Um, this was most punctually fulfilled, for after the temple was burned, Titus, the Roman general, ordered the very foundations of it to be dug up after which the ground on which it stood was plowed by Turnus Rufus. The, the, this generation of le- men living shall not pass till all these things be done. The expression implies that a great part of that generation would be passed away, but not the whole. Just so it was, for the city and temple were destroyed 39 or 40 years after. John Wesley. John Lightfoot. Hence it appears plain enough that the foregoing verses, Matthew 24, 1 through 34, are not to be understood of the last judgment, but as we said of the destruction of Jerusalem, there were some among the disciples, particularly John, who lived to see these things come to pass. Thomas Newton. It is to me a wonder how any man can refer part of the foregoing discourse, Matthew 24, to the destruction of Jerusalem and part to the end of the world or any other distant event when it is said so positively here in the conclusion, all these things shall be fulfilled in this generation. R.C. Sproul. In this discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the dispersion of the Jews, all of which took place in A.D. 70. The uncanny accuracy of these predictions is embarrassing to higher critics. Okay, so you know that this is not just coming, this is not just coming from me. This Matthew 24 is really all about um, the destruction of Jerusalem and the law-based system which already took place. It already happened. Okay? You guys good so far? All right, so let me read this for you. This is Matthew 24, 30 through, 30 through 41. This is just, this is kind of just different, okay? Uh, I'm kind of putting, taking off my preacher's hat and putting on a teaching hat this morning. Um, Matthew 24, 38 through 41. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, it's interesting that they use the coming of the Son of Man in conjunction, conjunction with a judgment that is coming, all right? And then he says, then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Now, here's a, here's a point that uh, is going to ruffle some feathers maybe a little bit. Um, <laughs> is, is simply this, is that you, we have to, a lot of people use this to um, mean the rapture, okay? I've always struggled with that understanding of the rapture because a lot of people were like, what are you? Are you, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? And, you know, part of me was just like, you know, I just think everything's going to pan out in the end. And so we call it, we call it pan-trib, right? <laughs> it's just like one line of thought because it's all futuristic. Um, but it seems like Matthew 24 is, is a historical setting. It, it took place already. And so in this case, uh, they said life will be going on as usual, okay? Um, And then it says, and it says, uh, um, then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. And so here's where we get the whole like left behind series, which I'm not a big fan, okay? Um, That's just me, all right? I'm just being honest. It's just me. You're welcome to like it. It's fine. I... 
And like I said, this is not me telling you how to believe. This is me just saying this is my interpretation. I'm taking an academic approach to this. That's all this is, okay? Um, and so uh, this is where part of where the, the rapture is taking place from. But historically, let me just tell you historically where this finds its place. Historically, Rome was coming. Because at that time, there was something known as the Pax Romano, which means Roman peace, okay? There were no wars or rumors of wars. We hear of wars and rumors of wars all the time, okay? Ever since I can remember, there have been wars and rumors of wars. Um, and so it's like, it's like this perpetual end times thing taking place. But back then, they were, no, they were part of something called the Pax Romano, Roman peace. Rome had taken over the whole known world. And so there was peace, there were no wars. There were no rumors of wars. And then it, was, it wasn't until Israel rose, rose up and started to rebel that we, we get wars and rumors of wars. And those were part of the signs that the end was near because Rome came and flattened them. And Jesus proclaimed, Jesus prophesied it. This come upon this generation. So uh, when you read this scripture verse where it says two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left, Rome was coming. And he's saying what they would, basically what they would do if, if it was me and Chris, okay? Let's say Chris was with me. You don't have to come up. But, you know, uh, let's say it's, just, it's me and Chris and we're both in the field and we're working and I'm working a little bit harder than he is, but we're working in the field and, and, uh, and they come up to us. Let's say they take me. I'm the raptured one. They'd slice me in half. And they'd say to Chris, the left behind one, see, you did want to be left behind. You didn't want to be part of the rapture. He'd say to Chris, the left behind one, they would say, we're coming for you. Go tell everybody we're coming. That was the context. Okay? So you didn't really want to be raptured. You, you wanted to be the one left behind. That's the historical context. You can go look that up for yourself if you like. Okay? <laughs> you guys with me so far? So the coming of the Son of Man was a coming of judgment on the law-based system. Now let me just say this. I don't believe we're waiting for an apocalypse. I believe we're waiting for a bridegroom. I do believe in a second return of Christ, but I believe that it's not an apocalypse we're waiting for. A one-world government and antichrist, I don't believe that. I believe we're waiting for a bridegroom to return, which is why we need to make ourselves ready because he's returning for a mature bride and we need to go make a difference in the world. You guys with me so far? Okay? Now, why was Jesus coming against the law-based system? Why did this have to be destroyed? Now, I've, I've, I've spent some time on this uh, last year, but let me reiterate. In Romans 4.15, do we have this one, Jesse? It goes on a little bit further, but it says, for the law brings wrath. Okay? The law brings wrath. And so my question for you is, if the law brings wrath and there was no law, would there be any wrath? And I would have to argue no. Um, for the first 2,487 years of Scripture, so roughly the first 2,500 years of Scripture, there is no mention of the wrath of God. You see the wrath of Pharaoh, you see the wrath of Potiphar, but you do not see the wrath of God. In Exodus 20, the law is given. Two chapters later, guess what word shows up for the very first time? The wrath of God. Because the law brings wrath. So we have no mention of the wrath of God until the law is given. Once the law is given, all of a sudden we find the wrath of God. Because the law brings wrath. 
So we sing this song, you know, it's uh, um, in Christ alone. We don't sing anymore because I put an end to it. It's a great song except for the one line. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And then it's like we read Revelations and there's seven more bowls of wrath to come. So we could sing it, the wrath of God was partially satisfied, but I don't think that would go so well. Did the wrath of God have any, did the cross have anything to do with the wrath of God? I would have to argue no. Because if the wrath of God was fully satisfied on the cross, then why do we see seven more bowls of wrath to come in the book of Revelations? So it wasn't satisfied. Why? Because what Jesus was doing was, he was, he was, he was establishing a new covenant. That's why that veil was torn in two. That mosaic law where the veil was, saying this covenant is gone now, it's over, it's, it's obsolete, and then 40 years later, the whole thing would be completely eradicated and destroyed. You guys with me? Okay. So, so when you go to the book of Revelations, we have to be careful with this one as well because um, there's, some, there's a lot of imagery. And, you know, it doesn't make sense for, because Jesus, he's telling John to write to seven churches in Asia Minor. And he's, it doesn't make sense for Jesus to say, I want you to write these letters to these people, these churches, but just tell them to hold on to them because it's gonna, not going to mean anything for them. It's all have to do with people in the future. So we read like, oh, there's an eagle here. It must be talking about America. You can't do that, okay? You have to read it in context with, with, how, with how they were trying to write to those people at that time, in, the, in that time frame. And actually, when you do the research, you discover that the way, the order in which he wrote to those seven churches was the exact order that the Romans took to Jerusalem. And so he was telling them all in advance what was to come. And he's telling them, hold on to him who overcomes. I'm going to give this and to him who overcomes. They were going through, through some serious persecution at that time. And so he's trying to encourage them to hold on because 70 AD, the abomination of desolation, is about to take place. Okay? And so when you read this, there's so much in imagery. It's really a painting that's taking place here. And so what ends, ends up happening is um, uh, when you read about, because we, we're, we're expecting a one-world government, there was one at that time. Rome had taken over everything. They were part of the Pax Romano. Um, and then we also find that the emperor at the time was Nero. Has anybody heard of Nero? Okay, bad dude, right? Um, I can't even say some of the things that he did because of how horrible they were. Uh, but his nickname, you know what his nickname was? His nickname was the Beast. And so you find that in the book of Revelations because that's imagery, okay? And so he mentions the Beast. The Nero used to dress up. He married a 12-year-old boy. He did horrible things, and he used to dress up in animals' clothing, tie people up, and do horrible, horrible things to them, okay? He was, he was, his nickname was the Beast. He carried a, uh, an antichrist spirit. Um, to me, he was the kind of the fulfillment of that. Um, and... And so, you, uh, so we, have the, we have an antichrist, we have a one-world government, and then what takes place is he decides, well, I'm going to erect an image of myself that people have to worship. So it's called the image of the beast, right? Which you find in Revelations as well. Um, and then what happened was, in order for people to buy and sell goods, they had, to be, they, had to, they had to worship the image of the beast. But then how would they know that you worshipped? So they would mark you with like ash, and you were given the mark of the beast, either here or here. 
So we're all kind of like waiting for like barcodes to be put on us and chips in our wrists and stuff like that. Um, but uh, they were, in order to worship, historically, you can go look this up, you can. Okay, historically, what would take place is they would worship the image of the beast, and then they would be marked with the mark of the beast so they can go in and they can buy and sell goods. That's the context of that, okay? And so they are going through a lot of stuff during this time. The, the, the law-based system is still taking place. Israel is rising up and rebelling against Rome, and Rome is now coming to put a stop to this. And so... And so you see, you know, in the book of Revelations, it says like a third, a third of the world burnt up or a third of the stars fell or a third of this happened, a third of the, the waters turned to, to, on the earth turned to, uh, to blood. But you know what's interesting? Uh, I, think the, 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 um, I think the word earth or world is used 70 times in the book of Revelations. Only three times is the word cosmos where it speaks of the whole world, for God's love, the cosmos. He gave his only begotten son. He, it, it's only mentioned three times out of 70, I believe. I think it's 70. I gotta, I gotta check that. Um, the rest of the time, the word that is used is either gi or, I'm gonna butcher this, a yukimene. All right? And a yukimene basically means a geographical location on the earth, not the whole thing. So we talk about a third of the world's plants burned up. It was a third of the Yucumene on the earth, a third of the plants on the Yucumene, the geographical location, which would have been Jerusalem. A third of Jerusalem, Jerusalem burnt up. The stars falling from heaven, that's speaking of governors and leaders and politicians that are going to be brought down. Um, you know, it's, it's all imagery that we have to look at. We have to keep things in, to, in context. And so, and so this is, this, it's, it, you know, a third, of, a third of, the, of Jerusalem being burnt up. That's not so bad compared to the whole world. Okay, it was an apocalypse that took place right there. The the, the uh, millions of Jews died, but you know what? Jesus had spent and John the Baptist had spent most of their ministry saying, "Flee from the wrath to come." The law brings wrath, right? The destruction of the law-based system would uh, utterly annihilate that. And so, Jesus told them, "Flee to the when you see these things happen, flee to the mountains." It's recorded that not a sink when this happened, they saw the abomination of desolation. All the Christians fled to the mountains, and not a single Christian died. Not a single one is recorded to have perished. <laughs> All right? Um, I think they, they fled to the mountain Pelay. So, uh, you guys track with me so far? Okay, this good? All right. Um, so th- this is this is kind of this is this is the this is the context that we're seeing. There was another point I was going to make. I can't remember what it was now. It will come back to me. I just got to keep talking. Um, um, but uh, so when we when we see like the third of this burnt up and a third of that happened, um, it says that there are were these these seven plagues. Okay. Now this is speaking once again. We have to keep this in connection with Matthew twenty four, Matthew twenty three, Daniel chapter nine, and the destruction and, and the book of Revelations, which speaks about the destruction of of Jerusalem. Um, and so what happens is God takes, there are these seven plagues that were going to be poured out on the earth. Remember, if the wrath of God was, if the wrath of God was fully satisfied on the cross, why do we see seven more bowls of wrath to come? Because the cross didn't have anything to do with the wrath of God because the law brings wrath. And so the, the plagues in, 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 uh, in Revelations 15 get put into bowls, which become the wrath of God in Revelation 16, and they get dumped out on the earth. Now, this is what it says, though. Remember, the law brings wrath. There's no mention of the wrath of God until the law is given. The first 2,487 years of Scripture, there's no mention of the wrath of God. The law is given, Exodus 20, Exodus 22, uh, we see the wrath of God. So the law brings wrath. 
And then we find this, which is in Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with the seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Okay? It came against the law-based system in 70 AD and completely wiped it out. It was a system that would no longer be able to be represented in the earth today because there were two ages, the, the present age and the age to come. The present age, the Mosaic law was completely ended. That's why the disciples are like, when will this all come to be? When will be the end of the age? And he's telling them, 40 years time. It's all historical. This happened already. And so we have, when we have this futuristic tribulation eschatology, what we find is we find ourselves expecting an apocalypse to take place. So Revelations 1 verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how it starts. The word, where we get the word apocalypse is from a word called apocalypto. And that's that word revelation right there. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the apocalypto. It doesn't mean for bad things to happen, okay? The apocalypto is an unveiling. It's a revealing of Jesus. You guys with me so far? Okay, apocalypto means unveiling or revealing. Here's the question then. Why was Jesus hidden? Why did he have to be uncovered? Because it's the uncovering of Jesus, and then we find 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 16. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, that, that covenant, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The old covenant of Moses did not reflect the heart of God. It reflected the heart of the people at the time. Because the heart of God, we find in Exodus 19, you guys are going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I, means everyone would have had direct access to God. But they said, no, no, we don't want that. And only the Levites become the priests because they're the only ones who accepted the covenant. And so God changes it and he gives, makes a covenant just like all the rest of them. <laughs> and so they said, just give us the do's and don'ts. We'll meet you with you that way. So God gave them what they wanted. So it's a covenant that doesn't reflect the heart of God. It reflects the, it reflects the heart of the people because it has nothing to do with relationship. And so why did God have to be, why did it have to, so when everyone, when anyone reads the old covenant, a veil lies over people's hearts. Why do we see the revelation of Jesus Christ? Because in 70 AD, the law was destroyed, which blinds people from seeing who God is, and God is revealed. This making sense? Okay. This is why this had to happen. All right. Now I'm going to tie this in to our Difference Maker series. Like I said, this is just me. This is just what I've come to believe. And I'm taking a very academic approach to this, okay? And I hope you will too. And this is not me telling you what to believe, all right? I just want to make that point over and over. Um, you guys good? You good? We're, we're still buddies, right? Okay. It's hard. You know, it's hard in my position because, like, I want to speak what I believe is truth. Uh, it's just sometimes, pe you know, people don't always want to hear it. Um, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Okay. Uh, so here's the problem that I, I, that I find in the world today and where I think Christianity has been hijacked a bit. The Bible says that your words have power unto life and unto death. How we speak matters. How we believe matters. How you think about things. 
and what you expect in life, it matters. And the church today is expecting an apocalypse. We're expecting everything to go wrong and for all of our efforts to fail, right? I mean, because that, that's what we think. We think, well, there's going to be an end-time government and a one-world government and an antichrist and all these things that were promised, they have to be fulfilled sti- still. And, you know, it, people are going to be persecuted everywhere. And, and so when we, when, we see, when we see Christians being persecuted, we go, it's supposed to happen. This is supposed to happen. And that becomes our expectation, right? And so it robs us of our fight, to get into the world and to make a difference. Because if you believe that an antichrist is to come, just think about this. If you believe that there's a one world government and an antichrist and all these things that are still meant to take place, then why should you go and make the world a better place? Because if you do that, if you're, kind of, if you're stopping, if you're going to try and stop a one world government from taking place or stop an antichrist from happening, which we should, okay? But if you're, if you're going to do all that type of stuff, then you're actually prolonging the return of Jesus, right? So maybe you shouldn't do that stuff. Maybe we should, just, we should just not go to church, and we shouldn't pray for the sick, and we should just throw garbage everywhere, and we shouldn't make this world a better place so he comes back sooner, right? Does that make sense? I mean, why should you make the world, why should you be a difference maker if you're just expecting that all of our efforts are going to fail, If there's going to be an antichrist one day, you know what people do? We, we, we do today. We say, and people, organizations have done this, you know, um, where they say, you know, donate money and you'll get a palm tree and it will, all the money will go to sending a Jew back to their homeland in Israel. And they're like, well, they're, they're going to get annihilated because that's what happens in Revelation. I don't want to get, I don't want to pray that someone gets annihilated. All right, but we have entire people, people groups, prayer, prayer organizations that are praying that they go back and like, no, don't go there. You know, like if that's what you believe, if that's your expectation, I don't want to give money for someone to go get slaughtered. I don't want to do that. Okay, but that's what that's what takes place today. It's crazy. <laughs> so, so we, I, if you believe that there's just going to be some one world government and an antichrist to come and all this type of stuff and everything's meant to get worse and kids are supposed to be disobeying their parents more and more and the love of many is just supposed to grow cold everywhere, then uh, if you try and stop that from happening, then Jesus is not going to come back. If you try and stop that from happening, then you're prolonging the return of Christ. Like I said, I don't think we're waiting for an apocalypse. I think we're waiting for a bridegroom which means we need to make ourselves ready, which means we need to make this world a better place because he's returning for a mature bride. And so we need to be not extricating ourselves and, you know, getting, you know, whenever light leaves, darkness comes in. And so, like, it's like we have our own little Christian circles and communities and schools and, and music and movies. And it's like, no, we should be in there. We should be leading culture, Right? We should, be, we should be leading the arts. We should, be, we should be have control over Hollywood. We should be in government. We should be in all of the politics. We should be because we have a kingdom of God to release in this world. You guys with me? My preaching's kicking in now, okay? So that's, what we, that's what's needed in this world. But we have the entire church, most of mainstream Christianity is thinking it's all meant to get worse. And it robs us of our fight. And I don't want to lose my fight, Okay? I want to be involved in this community, and I, I want to get us, you know, we, we need to get into the world and influence it with the kingdom of God. 
This is what you know what? And, and don't listen to the media. They don't know what they're talking about anyway. The report that I'm hearing is that the church is, is spreading like never before. I mean, the underground church in China was taking place in Africa right now. You see Reinhard Bunke, millions are coming to know Jesus. The ma- a mature bride is developing, and we get to be a part of that. And we need to stop just sitting around just expecting everything to get worse and be a part of the solution of making everything better because when we do, we we hasten the return of Christ. Is the church meant to fail or to succeed? Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Habakkuk 2, 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this is this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We have this like government, peace, yay, and then end times. Ah! And then, and it's like, and Jesus comes back, woo, we're good, we're good again. No, there's no end. It keeps going. Ah. Because, I mean, I, I hear it so many times. It's just like, you know, we, we see bad things. It's like, yeah, it's supposed to happen. It's just like, then we're not going to do anything about it. Because we just like, it's supposed to go this way. And then we just, just let it be. And so the world gets worse and worse. Because we've just, we won't fight back. You know, I think at the cross, and we can have the worship team come on up. At the cross, it says in Colossians 2, Colossians 2, it says, it says that um, he stripped the rulers and authorities and he paraded, basically paraded them naked through the streets. If, if the enemy has no authority because he stripped them of that, then Jesus has all authority. And then he says, I give it to you. If Satan has no authority, then how do we still see him moving and operating in this world today? That's why we authorize him. He, that's why the way you think, it matters. The way, because it affects the way you believe. And so if you believe that all this is going to take place, what do we end up doing? We, We end up declaring, oh, it's all meant to get worse. There's an antichrist coming. There's, there's a one world government coming. And so we declare this. He uses our own mouths against us. It's making sense? We need to start declaring that it's, you know what? It's going to get better. This is what I'm believing. We can be a part of the solution, making this world a better place. Listen, like I said, you can believe what you want to believe. But I think that end times, eschatology is one that it robs us of purpose, of making a difference in the world and it robs the world of Jesus. And I don't want to do that. And so, man, may we stand. May we fight. May we not back down. This world needs Jesus. He's returning for his bride. Let's make her ready.